Hello, hello, everyone. Good to be here with you for this live cast. This is live, so it's wonderful to see everyone here with us. And uh, listen, um, tonight we're going to be talking about... One second here. Guys, can you get the background? There we go. Hey, tonight we're going to be talking about monkeypox, and we're going to be talking about how some bankers are, world, I mean, central bankers are receiving privately uh, consultant information saying that there's, they should be prepared for massive social unrest. And as well, uh, we have to be looking into a little bit about what's going on with respect to food and fuel, because these are the big things of the day. So this is a live cast, and we're looking forward to your comments coming and weighing in on this and being part of this. So leave the comments, and if we can get to them, we will. Uh, we've got Aaron, we've got Ryan here, both checking and watching this. We've got Mike Congaro sitting out, hanging out in the comments. So my team is here with me tonight, and we are going to do the best we can to weave in as many comments as we can, because that's the point of having a live cast. We're here together. And of course, we're in this whole thing together, whatever this thing is. And um, I know it's getting hard uh, for a lot of folks out there. It's just uh, the, the never-ending well, monkeypox, you know, the never-ending hobgoblins and series of things coming along that fundamentally uh, make it feel like we're uh, rats in a cage. We're just being treated to a never-ending series of things that are meant to, it seems, that's soft terms, things that are pretty much meant to keep us on edge, keep us full of anxiety, keep us distracted, all of that. But I'm going to try and get us focused back on what I think is really the important substance here tonight and today. So we have an extraordinary number of things to talk about tonight, of course, because so many things are happening. The markets are busy uh, crashing out there or close to it in a lot of respects. We've had uh, various uh, disruptions in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and the, the Luna uh, piece there. But that's not the important part. The important part is what's going on under the surface with respect to our food, our fuel, all of that, and the inflation that's now obviously the result of decades of central bank malfeasance. They've been doing dumb things. I've been writing about this for a very long time. It was completely predictable, completely obvious that all of that money printing was someday going to blow up. Why? Very simple. Uh, money's not a real thing. I know, I know we talk about it as if it's a real thing, and if you have enough of it, they'll they'll... You know, they won't even ask you about the time you spent with Jeffrey Epstein as you opine around uh, issues on related to what we should eat and what we should stick in our bodies. Right. That's the Bill Gates story. The there's absolutely we're stuck in this place where if you have money, of course, people give you more credibility, more more time of day. At least that's how it is in the dominant culture. And of course, the people who own the system tend to be the rich people. So, of course, they reinforce that whole model now. Because of where we really are, though, we're also being heavily distracted from the things that actually matter. And is this unintentional? Is it just benign neglect? Is it incompetence? Or is it something more malevolent than that? We don't know. But as they say in the military, once is an accident, twice is coincidence, three times is enemy action. It looks to me like there are people who are indistinguishable from folks who might be intentionally trying to wreck the system because they're doing a darn good job. We're going to take a look at some things I think are it's kind of system wreckers here. So let's get on with that and take a look. The title of this one is Banking on Social Unrest. It was a really extraordinary article that just came out a couple days ago. I wanted to walk 
through that article with you because I, I do trust the journalist who writes these this article. I know them to be very trustworthy in the past, so I do trust the source that they are quoting in this. If that all is accurate, if the, if the source has been accurately conveying to the journalist, I think I think the journalist is accurately conveying what they heard. Let's hope that um, what this person was saying was accurately conveyed to that journalist. So let's go there. Let's take a look at it. Banking on social unrest. This is the article here. Uh, Nafiz Ahmed, Dr. Rafiz Ahmed wrote this. He's done a lot of pretty good writing in the past. This is coming out, uh, well, that's today. So this is very recent. Let me get my drawn to allowed here so we can all share in this together. Yep, come on. There we go. All right. Uh, coming to us here from the 19th of May, 2022 exclusive. This is only to be found here in Byline Times. So there's the link. These links will be down in the show notes after the show. Title, Global Banks Privately Prepare for Dangerous Levels of Imminent Civil Unrest in Western Homelands. So this isn't the banks figuring out what they're going to do if we see more unrest like we've been seeing in Tunisia, um, Sri Lanka, Tajikistan, all sorts of places where we're seeing increasing unrest. Because why? Because food costs are exploding. And of course, when food costs rise above a certain threshold level within a society, particularly when they do it very rapidly, like they have done lately, that's a recipe for social unrest is what we saw in 2011 with the Arab Spring. Wheat prices, in particular corn prices, had spiked back then. Why? Because oil prices had spiked back then. And oil and food production are very tightly linked concepts. It costs... Food, uh, food costs are based on the price of energy inputs. Why? Because we have a lot of oil in our, in our agricultural processes, both in the growing and the distribution of those foodstuffs around the world. So why did oil prices spike so rapidly and so high back in 2008? In July of 2008, oil hit an all-time high of $147 a barrel. In inflation-adjusted terms, that's a lot higher than it is currently here today. Why did it spike back then? Well, very simply, for five out of six quarters, oil had just slightly, just slightly, the supply had been under actual demand. Just a tiny bit, but that's all it takes in the inelastic oil markets. As they say, that's where you see a lot of price action happen because when they say inelastic, it means for any time there's a movement in supply, the price goes up and vice versa. It's very inelastic. It's a very stiff relationship. With elasticity, you know, supply can go up or down and the prices don't move all that much. It's sort of called an elastic relationship, but oil is very much an inelastic substance out there. Why? Because we need it. We need it for everything. If you put on your energy goggles, look around the world, you will see that energy is everything in your life and oil in particular is the master resource. So that's what happened in 2008. Oil went up to 147 a barrel because a very tiny little, tiny, I mean, by, by world's measures, fractions of a percent imbalance between what the supply was and what the demand was, which made prices go crazy. And then the oil prices bled into the food prices. And then a Tunisian food vendor lit themselves on fire. And we had this explosion across the MENA region, of Middle East, North Africa. And that was called the Arab Spring. Well, we're back there again today. And so this is a confluence of factors that are driving oil and food prices and all these other things much, much higher than even we saw back then. There's going to be no end to this. I will not at all be surprised to see oil in this particular run that we're in right now 
by the end of 2022, continuing through 2023, I will not be surprised to see oil hitting two or $300 a barrel. Unthinkable? Nah, not really. Equivalent oil price in diesel in New England is at 250 a barrel right now, running at about 650 a gallon for diesel. And it's been that level, 200 to $400 a barrel equivalent in Europe for a very long time due to the taxes that are put on petrol over there. So would the world pay 200, 300 barrel for oil? Yes. Would it pay 500? You bet. Would it pay a thousand? Yes. <laughs> Once you realize how much energy and work is contained in a barrel of oil, you say, yeah, yeah, that's a bargain. Absolute bargain at any of those prices I just mentioned, including the highest price. So that doesn't, even though we would pay it, it doesn't mean we're going to be happy about it. And social unrest is often due to not the absolute change, but the relative change in circumstances within a society. So if you took an average Bangladeshi subsisting on two bowls of rice and you took them down to one and three quarter bowls of rice per day, you know, that's a, probably a weatherable event. You take your average suburban U.S. citizen living on the outskirts of a major city and you put them on one and three quarter barrels, bowls of rice a day, uh, you have a problem on your hands. That It's that relative drop in living standard from where they are. So that's part one. Part two is our leaders haven't been honest about any of this and they're busy lying and or they're just busy being ignorant or they're just ignorant liars. I don't know what's happening. But here in the United States, we've seen recently the new press secretary and Joe Biden himself explaining that the way we're going to get inflation back down again is we're going to tax corporations. Now, I can understand from a from a variety of dimensions why you might want to tax corporations, but that has nothing to do with inflation, right? So if you tax a corporation, the corporation's costs go up and you know what happens next. They pass those costs on, they pass those costs on to their consumers. It, and that does the opposite of making prices go down if that's how you're measuring inflation. At any rate, inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. We're here because decades of central bank printing, because of the most recent orgy of printing that happened as a consequence or through the excuse of COVID, massive amounts of printing in the European Central Bank, the U.S. Central Bank. What, what does that do for us? Why do we care about it? Because it's going to create a huge amount of disruption and misery within the system. And it's very predictable that it's going to happen. But exactly what happens is going to be very difficult to sort of parse out and figure out. So let's go back here, take a look at this. Global banks privately prepare for dangerous levels of imminent civil unrest in Western homelands. The context for this is the food and the energy costs. All right. This was pretty intense to read because I, this is how I think, and I, I happen to know a lot of people who are already thinking this way, but by the time you find out that the bankers themselves are a pretty insulated group of people, right? They, they go to Davos meetings and, you know, they eat in all the best places and they're very disconnected from the average reality. By the time the reality of social unrest is percolated all the way up to the C-suites in these major banks, that tells you how far along we are in this story. So to me, this is a signpost. It's not because these people are talking about it that it now can be a reality. It's that because it's finally filtered up to this level of fairly deluded individuals, I consider fairly out of touch. That tells you where we are in the story and fairly far along. Quote in yellow, global banks and investment firms are bracing themselves for an unprecedented upsurge in civil unrest in the U.S., U.K., and Europe as energy and food prices, food price spikes are set 
to drive cost of living to astronomical levels, Byline Times can exclusively reveal. End quote. Unprecedented upsurge in civil unrest. That's what they're facing up for here. Uh, obviously, they're just looking at other countries. Remember, my model for this is called outside in. When you want to find out what's about to happen in your country, if you live in a core country in the center, you look at the outside and you see what's happening there and you start watching and observing for the patterns as they come closer and closer. So that could be watching that social unrest that's already there in Sri Lanka, which is in a devastating situation of having run out of both petrol and food. It's just, it's it, food inflation. It's just, it's a really bad situation or in Tajikistan or other places where we're seeing those food and inflation riots, Peru, those we would consider at the edge if you happen to live in Germany or the United States or Canada. But if you're in that core country, now you watch. And if you're in Europe, you're going to be watching those Eastern European countries, and then you're going to be watching Greece, then Italy, and then so on. And as you watch that progression of social unrest come closer and closer, that's when you know it's coming to your homeland somewhere down that path, unless things change. So I don't see any change to the food situation for at least a year or two in the uh, fuel situation for a year or two, minimum. And that's if we do things right. Vladimir says, yeah, remember to hit the like button. Thank you very much for that, Vladimir. Yeah, yeah, hit the like. It, it tells the YouTube algorithm that people like this, and, and then the algorithm gets all happy and shows it to other people. So if you think this is the kind of content other people should hear, or you would love to have these kinds of conversations with more people, hit the like button. It's the easiest, low-cost thing you could do here. All right, so carrying on. Back to this uh, piece here. So this information, quoting, comes from the head of a financial institutions group which provides expertise and advisory services to other banks, insurance companies, other financial institutions at one of the largest investment firms in the U.S. The senior investment executive who spoke to Byline Times on condition of anonymity because the information he revealed is considered highly sensitive, said that Contingency planners at top financial institutions believe dangerous levels of social breakdown in the West are now all but inevitable and imminent. Happening soon. In green, down below, an outbreak of civil unrest is expected to occur any time this year, but most likely in the coming months, as the impact of the cost of living crisis begins to saturate the lives of everyone. So in quotes, I assume that again came from this senior investment executive who probably won't be that hard for the people in the banking system to maybe start narrowing this the suspect list uh, it's like you know we had this extraordinary never in my lifetime leak from the supreme court and nobody seems to know who that was just like can't fi can't figure that out so maybe this person's just, just will be safe like that i also have to wonder if it isn't possibly true that this person was asked to leak this stuff you know that this was this was one of those things where hey i'm going to leak something to you but actually it was an intentional leak and then we have to question why that might happen um a lot of reasons we could come up with for that but bottom line taking this at face value it's pretty clear that what you and i have been tracking for a while around social unrest is now percolated to the very highest levels so what, what kind of planning could central banks take? I mean, what could they really do, right? Put more cash in the ATMs, take more cash out of the ATMs. I mean, who really knows what, what the banks can do at this point in time? Because they're caught in a really bad position. Rock, hard place. 
on the rock side. They have to dial back all the excess money they've put in the system, and they threaten to literally crash the system. That's all the weakness we've been seeing over here in financial markets, which is the stock markets. They tell you about that. What they don't tell you often about, you have to go hunting for it or be more sophisticated to know about it, is watching the credit markets. Remember, stocks are for show, but bonds are for dough. So that's where we're seeing a lot of... Uh, action. The, the bonds are sneaking out the back door, particularly on high yield debt. And so that tells me from the outside in standpoint that the weaker debt instruments are already busy blowing up. And, and so that's the hard place is, hmm, do we crash the system by taking all this money out? The hard place in this story is they leave all this money in the system or they return to their printing ways. Things feel good for another couple of months, but then we see the actual bonfire of the currencies. And so that's also very destructive and bad. So which direction do they go at this point in time? I don't see any middle, middle road. The problem is it's not just a financial or monetary problem or predicament that we're in right now. It's that there's reality. There's this reality thing happening over here. It's like this third thing. So what's in the reality bucket? The fact that we have all of these supply chain disruptions that have led to the loss of things like steel casing pipe and workers to haul sand onto the fracking sites in the United States. So we're not getting additional oil output there. We're seeing massive, there have been no deep water drilling. That's five years in the rearview mirror. There's nothing we can do about that except start putting money towards uh, ultra deep water and deep water drilling. It's already baked in the cake and there's nothing you can't print your way out of a energy shortfall. And that's what we're in the midst of right now. It's, it's really very serious in the United States. It's it's so bad that if the only thing I could see that could possibly rectify our situation right now on the supply side would be to emergency build some refineries, a couple. I mean, we're right at max capacity on the ones we've got. And they're just not keeping up because they're also trying to supply Europe, which is now cut off from all the Russian oil and distillate products. That's there's just not enough spare capacity in the system at this point in time to do that. And so that's the only thing that could work. And by the way, in the United States, you can't get anything done without a mountain of red tape and nobody's going to want a refinery in their backyard and it can't get done and it's just not going to happen anytime soon. But least of all, we would have the political moxie intelligence and will to do that because that might be a smart thing to do. You know what? Let's build some extra refinery capacity. We need it. We could do it on an emergency footing. But first, we'd have to decide it was important. And we don't have that. That would be a serious conversation. We have unserious leaders, right? 28 million for baby food, 40 billion plus another 100 million, just with a little sugar on top for, for Ukraine, which uh, frankly is not going to do anything for anybody here in the United States that's going to help with any of these things we're talking about right now. But most importantly, this massive spiking inflation that's going to make it hard on everyone as that thing said so let's go to that there's one more yeah at least one more piece out of this this is continuing in that same article by uh, dr ahmed in um in byline quote according to the executive major banks all over the world including in the u.s uk and western europe are instructing their top managers to begin actively planning how they will respond to the impact of financial disruption triggered by a prolonged episode of civil unrest. So that's what they're being asked to plan for is like, how are we going to keep our financial systems working? How are they not going to be disrupted? Prolonged episode of civil unrest, all kinds of things could happen under that circumstance. 
just markets could get shut down. People wouldn't have access to banks and banking systems. It's possible that you could have fires or other infrastructure damage. I mean, how do you plan for something like this? But they're being asked to plan for a prolonged episode of civil unrest. This isn't like people got got uppity for a weekend and they went out and lit a dumpster on fire. They're asked being asked to plan for something that could actually persist for a very long time. I, I believe they're probably looking at Sri Lanka and seeing what's happening there. And the difficulty here is that the kind of unrest, if you read between the lines of what they're talking about, I believe they're talking about not just people generally going out into the streets and sort of venting and getting a little unhappy, but the kind of unrest that actually leads to things being damaged and possibly, as we saw in the case of Sri Lanka, the poor starving people are actually targeting the executives and the wealthy and the senior leadership and the police, like like they're 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 pointing their fingers now, not at each other like rats in a cage. They're pointing them to the people who should have maybe figured out it was their job to avoid getting the country into the kind of mess it's in in Sri Lanka. So once that happens, I think that gives you that sense of prolonged civil unrest. That's what can happen when People finally figure out where the shocks are coming from, whose job it was to actually not have those situations emerge the way they did. And then the anger actually gets directed in whole new areas. And that's a concern, obviously. Uh, it's one thing if people riot and they burn down a local tire shop and a hairdresser. It's entirely different thing if people riot and they head towards the country club. We haven't seen that in a lot of Western countries in a very, very long time. I believe reading between the lines, that's what they're worried about here. It's not just that there's civil unrest, but that the civil unrest will now begin to envelop their own lives. And in this case, the places they're in charge of, which is the financial system. So going back here, um, Firebrand Media writing here in the Philippines, 70% of income is spent on food. You could see how doubling food price is much more consequential here. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what I'm talking about, Firebrand Media. The, the Where already people are spending more than 40% of their income on food, any doubling at that point is just, or any percentage increase is very, very unwelcome. But a doubling is absolutely catastrophic. And in that case, if you already have 70% of your income, Food price doubles, goes up to 140% of your income, and your income isn't following. It's tracking along maybe a little bit with inflation, but it's not going up doubling. Then you have a big problem on your hands uh, because you are now going to have to be actually spending no money on anything else, all your money on food, and still not having enough money for food. That's a very disturbing situation, obviously. Uh, so that's, I think, what they're worried about here is that it's coming soon to a theater near you. Continuing, quote, all the major banks know that the cost of living crisis is out of control, said this top financial advisor. The pandemic was bad enough and highlighted how certain groups of people were going to be worse affected, the poor, minorities, and so on. But the combination of energy and food shocks are a tipping point that will push Western societies over the edge. This will impact everyone. Well-to-do middle classes will find it hard to afford staple foods and pay bills. So, we are anticipating dangerous levels of civil unrest that could spiral into an unprecedented social crisis, end quote. That's where we are, and I, I believe that that's actually a prudent thing for them to be worried about at this point. Once you understand the data about how far we are in this 50-year-old debt cycle, how much debt is out there, how much money and monetary aggregates are out there, you realize that 
We've been papering it over and kicking the can down the road, metaphorically speaking, for a very long time. Well, we've hit the end of the road. So now what? Do you, well, there's only a couple things. You could be honest with people and say, oh, look, you know, we kind of screwed up. We probably shouldn't have did what we did for the past 50 years. It was a lot of fun. We got invited to all the right parties. My friends got rich. As soon as I retired, I was planning to go. And like Bernanke, Ben Bernanke, chairman of the Federal Reserve, retires from the Federal Reserve and goes and takes a plum choice assignment with Citadel, which is one of the major, it is actually the largest trading desk in all of Wall Street. It controls more of the flow of daily stock trading and other financial instrument trading than any other firm in the world by far. It controls upwards of 20 to 25% of daily flows. And Ben Bernanke went over there and took a nice, I guess, I hope he got an office window view, you know, up the, up the street because uh, he was being rewarded for a job well done. It, it's a, it's a, it was a very corrupt inbred self-referential system and everybody had fun for the past five decades and they got fabulously wealthy. But what they didn't do was manage the system for stability, longevity, sustainability. They just kept pumping more air into this thing and here we are. So that's the actual risk. And the risk is that when your financial systems cease functioning, our money, again, it's a concept. Money is an idea. Money is not a real tangible thing. We pretend like it is, but it's really not. It's actually a social agreement. It's a marker. Again, if we were both on a desert island and you had a crate of bananas and I had a crate of $100 bills, you're wealthier than I am, right? I just have paper. You actually have food calories, right? So, so once we strip away what we've imbued culturally around money, we understand that money is a, it's a thing. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's something we've objectified. It's, it's a concept. It's a social contract. Very importantly, it's a social contract. It solves for, I don't know you, you don't know me, but if you have something and I buy it from you, the dollars that exchange between us are yen or euros or whatever you're trading in. Those currencies are the trust mechanism. It allows me to not know who you are and still have a trusted relationship with you because you sell me something of acceptable quality and I give you these currency units. You're happy, I'm happy, we walk away and we don't have to know anything about each other. When, the, when that trust is broken, well, now what? You can easily see, if you can project that through, why and how all of a sudden when your currency system erodes, lots of things break down socially, a.k.a. Venezuela of the last few years. If you've seen all the raiding, it looks like Mad Max down there from time to time in some of the videos I've seen. Motorcycle gangs like literally chasing down sugar trucks and pulling them over and heaving sacks of sugar out of them. Uh, we see this in Zimbabwe when their currency system broke down. We saw this in Weimar, Germany when their currency system broke down. So things get dicey when your currency system breaks down. So again, remember rock hard place on one side, they have to undo decades of overprinting that crashes financial markets, makes people very unhappy, or they have to destroy the currency, keep printing and allow things to really get out of control. That's why you keep printing thousand dollar barrel oil, $2,000 barrel oil, 10,000 doesn't actually matter, right? You just keep putting one zeros on the end of your, of your currency units and um, we call it inflation, but actually it's significantly terrible management of the money system by the people who are supposed to be managing it and not be, not be dunces about it. So, hey, that's how it is. Listen, it didn't have to be this way, but it is. So it's our job to make sense of it and try and figure out 
where we want to be around that. Now, this is why I have a website called Peak Prosperity. This is the context. The next question is, well, what do you do about it? And there, you need a longer conversation. You know, I'm uh, projecting this to you on a live cast from a place in Western Massachusetts where I happen to have a mini farm and I'm spending a lot of time today, yesterday, tomorrow, so on. It's spring. And I'm busy building soil, planting fruit trees, tending to the chickens, got three new pigs, got three cows, figuring out how to install things because I think having that direct access to my own produced food is going to be one of the most important things I can do. Plus, I get to surround myself with beauty and uh, wonderful natural features and things like that. So, But that's my response. I would love to know what your responses are going to be, what you're going to be doing that. And uh, 456123G, T123G. Thank you for all your prophetic advice. The prophet, thank you. Uh, you've been very generous over time. And uh, not sure I'm a prophet, but I sure can smell BS. And I can tell you that everything getting us to where we are right now was a bunch of BS. It didn't have, it was just clearly, obviously going to result in this situation we're in. And if you don't believe me, I made this thing called the crash course. The first chapter came out in May of 2008. I serialized it. The last chapter came out in October of 2008, right before the crash. So I got lucky, you know, if you want to say lucky in that way, where, where I managed to predict that the markets were going to have a lot of trouble weeks right before they, they, that happened. It wasn't a prediction. It was an extrapolation. All I was doing was noting the trend. I'm like, well, I see that there are hairdressers in Las Vegas who have 19 homes and they, I see ninja loans and I see bad loans. And I have this idea that you can't have that much fraud in a market without it eventually blowing up. That was an easy prediction to make, but it wasn't a prediction. It was just trend extrapolating. All right. But back then when I was still talking about the crash course, one of the pieces I, I mentioned in the financial, I think this was, yeah, this is in the financial side. It was on the money creation side is this quote by Plutarch. The ancient philosopher thousands of years ago said, the oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics is a gap between the rich and the poor. It's sank the Aztecs, sank the Mayans, it sank the Greeks. When you get those really steep moments of deep unfairness so that we have people who perform basically no useful work in our society, nothing, they make money with money, but oh, they're stinking rich right? That becomes part of the fuel when they're talking about this social unrest that is now consuming the minds, apparently, of some of the bankers in the world. They have a right to be concerned because their policies and actions have led to deep social unfairness, a very steep have versus have nots. We've all seen it, right? The billionaires, like the top 50 billionaires, own as much as half the world or more, right? That leads to what Plutarch talked about, which is a very unstable social arrangement, which can go bad on you and go bad on you kind of quickly because it's a lot of potential energy in the system. It's, it's not fair. And, and we like fairness a lot. We're a social species. We love fairness. Fairness and reciprocity and altruism actually are the cornerstones of our species. And when those things are actually flipped on their head and the opposites of those, greed, and avarice and self-servingness, when those actually take over as the predominant traits of your leadership, you have an explosive social situation on your hand that's just waiting for about three empty meals to come roaring back out of the closet. And of course, the, 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 the misery index of what it means to have 
your life upended, your paycheck eroded, your inability to afford food, your um, potentially losing all your hopes and dreams about what the future was going to be. Maybe you trained for a specific job or role at great expense that no longer is necessary or needed because that went away. Because your leaders not only mismanaged the whole thing, but did it in a way that made themselves rich. Right? How many senators and congressmen do we know about in the United States who earn uh, less than $200,000 a year, but somehow manage to come out of those positions with 10, 20, 30, 60, 80, 100 million, 200 million dollars in their bank accounts at the end of that whole thing? Come on. Right? So, Plutarch, oldest and most fatal ailment of all republics, is a gap between the rich and the poor. So, back to this then. Um, But, quote, but the combination of energy and food shocks are a tipping point that will push Western societies over the edge. I dare say that it's a Western value to live in a stable and prosperous, law-abiding society. And they're saying, well, oops, you know, these food and energy shocks, which we had nothing to do with, we just have to manage as best we can, which, of course, they had everything to do with, or a lot, maybe not everything, but a lot. It reminds me of this. I keep coming back to this, the, the World Economic Forum having that wonderful vision of 2030 that they put out in 2016, and there were eight things on there that they sort of were happy visioning about. Of course, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy being one of them. But number eight is the one that always I come back to. Western values will have been tested to the breaking point, these people are now here at the upper ends of our banking system are now worrying about Western societies breaking, that, that this is now something that's very much on their radar screen. So if it's on their radar screen, it really ought to be on yours too. And there are a lot of things you can and should be doing to prepare for this. They're preparing. You really ought to be preparing as well. So this, this is what gets me though. Western values. So if we're going down the route of thinking, is this intentional? Everything that we're seeing, if we assign an intentional motive, there are people who are doing this on purpose. They're not just dummies. They actually have some sort of a scheme or a plan in mind. All right. If we go down that route and we ask that question, what would you do if you were you were specifically in charge of debasing or, or breaking a culture? Because that's what we really say when we're saying Western values will have been tested to the breaking point. What we're really talking about is the culture of the West being broken. So how would you break a culture? Well, I think you'd have to chip away at some of its most cherished cultural values. You'd have to upend those. You would have to do your level best to make sure that those things that, that used to be the firmament of a culture, it's, it's what we call the shared reality, right? We, I think we all still share this reality. Breathing oxygen is important to our continued existence. We could share that, right? If somebody came along all of a sudden and was in front of a Senate committee and said, oh, uh, we, our group has studied this and we think it's actually racist for people to insist on oxygen as a cornerstone of life, and, and here's our whole philosophy and rationale for that, and we've got some famous professors at some universities to back us up, and we've got books and newspaper articles that have been written, and look at all the tweets that support our view that oxygen is not necessary. In fact, it's, it reveals a deep, structural, hidden uh, encouragement and um, entitlement that belongs to certain people who are able to process oxygen. 
we, obviously we'd go, that's stupid. That's just nuts, right? But we've seen this over and over again. Are some things that ought to be really easy, shared realities between us are now under attack. And by that, what do I mean? I mean, I mean this. Uh, if you haven't seen it, um, so there's this wonderful, wonderful little video that you could go out. There's some, it's one of my favorites, and it's just a guy narrating over some social media clips that he's seen of people misspelling the word pregnant. You know, uh, can I get pergante? Uh, can I pegnate? You know, it's just it's hysterical. Look it up. It's very funny. So. Uh, I'm making fun of something, but let's play this right now and see if you can see any Western values maybe under attack here. You were questioning a woman by the name of Amy. I believe it's Arambidi, Arambidi perhaps. She's with uh, an abortion rights nonprofit by the name of Aval, Texas. And it was this debate over pronouns, and it kind of went to this point. You say a woman is. I believe that everyone can identify for themselves. Okay. Um, do, do you believe then that men can become pregnant and have abortions? Yes. Okay, so um, that was her answer. What do you take from that? Well, I think all three witnesses essentially agreed on that radical point. And I think just exposing it, asking what a woman is and getting a bizarre answer and whether who gets pregnant and has abortions is a sign of the, the radical folks who are arguing over uh, abortion today in that hearing, who the Democrat witnesses were, who the Democrats thought could advise Congress on what our policy response should be. Did, did I thought you it was uh, pretty that? exposing. Did you, did you expect that answer? Um, I expected something strange, and uh, I, it, she performed. Hmm. Dan Bishop, thank you for your time. All right, so I mean, can Megan can men get pregnant? Uh, that ought to be as of as recently as two years ago, and through all of human history, prior to that moment in time, that was a shared reality we had, where the answer was no. Um, and why it is that some people have decided to make that their cause celebre, and they're busy pushing very hard to confuse that issue and make something out of it, and all of that is. Uh, I think the only way I can really understand that is to think about it in terms of Western values being tested, because this should be the, the way you break a culture is you destroy their shared sense of reality. So I'm reading the latest book by Matthias Desmond. It's very good. I'm going to have him back on the program. We're going to talk to him. He wrote about mass formation psychosis. And one of the elements or four elements you need for mass formation. One of those elements is you have a loss of sense making. And if you were going to specifically try and put a culture or society under that mass hypnosis spell, one of the things that you would do, one of the four things, is you would be trying to assault their ability to make sense. So nonsense is a great way, it's a great tactic to begin to assault people's sense. And so by the time, you know, we're sitting here going, wait, I have to think about that. Am I going to have to wrestle this? What does she mean? There, there's a lot of confusion that goes around somebody just flatly telling you that, yeah, men can get pregnant and um, therefore men can get abortions, right? It's, uh, it's, I'm sure there's some convoluted thinking behind that, but one thing we can't say is, is that from a scientific standpoint, it makes sense. So in this book by Matthias Desmond, he made a really, really good one sentence, just grabbed me. He said that science is busy trying to figure out how, uh, theories that conform to reality. And people who are 
in the opposite mode of that, right? They are busy trying to make reality conform to their theory. So science is all about conforming yourself and your theories to reality, but authoritarians are very busy and very they're mostly invested in making sure that they can get reality to conform with their theory. So this is really, when we look at this, the, the connecting fibers for this particular story is that there are authoritarians out there who I believe are very interested in confusing the situation as a strategic tactic in order to be, be able to do more of the authoritarian things that they want to do. And that's, it's a great, I mean, golf claps for the strategy. I get it. It's, it's well done. It's being executed relatively well. And it's time to start asking, you know, what, where do we stand on that? What role do we want to play in that? You know, who are we going to be in there? But that should have been an easy, easy question to ask and answer. Can men get pregnant? No. Period. Just how that works. And it's just a simple matter of biology. All right. Um, so carrying back on here, this is still with that same article by Dr. Ahmed in, um, in the byline. Quote, this warning, the warning comes as Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey recently described how apocalyptic food and energy price rises in a 30-year high rate of inflation would lead to a very big income shock, driving up unemployment, slashing household spending, end quote. The, the, the misery index in the UK is already off the charts. They are officially reporting 9 plus percent rate of inflation, but unofficially or what we'd call realistically, it's actually higher than that already. As we know, the inflation numbers are heavily massaged by government statisticians to make them look better than they are. So when you see a 9% reading, that's bad and shocking, but not as bad and as shocking as horrifying as it really is. It's much higher than that. Quote, but that barely scratches the surface. The senior U.S. banking official warned Byline Times that the current crisis was about to plunge the general public, including middle classes, into deepening poverty. Worse, the conventional economic toolbox to address financial volatility had run out of steam. There isn't anything left in the toolbox of the existing financial system. We've run out of options. I can only, I can only see the situation worsening, end quote. So remember, I talked about the rock in the hard place. That, that's, that's what they're talking about there. That, I just decoded that for you. Rock, well... If we stop printing, financial systems collapse. A lot of people lose their jobs. There's a lot of misery. If we keep printing, the actual currency system collapses. People lose their jobs. There's a lot of misery. There's really, that's when he says we're, we're kind of out of tools here. I mean, how could you fix this, right? What, what would you do? Email or wire or uh, digitally transfer a million dollars to every person? Well, they would be temporarily little bit better off for about 10 minutes or so. And by the way, if that ever happens, if you ever get that sort of money that magically appears in your account because of emergency disbursements or a, a tax holiday or something like that, my advice is to run, not walk, to any place you can to buy something that's not nailed down and bring it home. Because uh, that will be one of the final warning signs that I'll be alerting my subscribers to when I see that final constellation of things that come together that says we're either going down the rock or the hard place route. A lot depends on which direction we're actually going. Right now it's a little bit split, but in my heart of hearts, I know that they always go for more printing when their backs are up against the wall rather than a big deflationary collapse because they're both bad 
But this one buys a few extra months of time, and there's ways for insiders to get stupidly rich off of the inflationary route. Whereas a lot of the stupidly rich people actually own a lot of financial assets that would get destroyed in the deflationary or the rock uh, avenue. So they tend not to go that way. So this is really like a an 80-20 split, 80% they're going to print again at some point. I'll be watching for those signs very carefully. 20%, it gets out of their hands. There's nothing they can do about it. It just goes down this despite all their best efforts and the thing still crashes um, on a deflationary path. But betting person, betting man time, we're going down the hard place route, which is to inflate again. I think that's coming. All right. Um, so... Uh, from Jessa, Chris, thank you for the incredible information. How can Australians protect themselves when it's difficult to own a gun? Should I invest in a baseball bat? L. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, you have to, first thing is you're going to be as safe as your community. So I would work very, very hard to work within my community to get to know people better, to know who I could trust, to develop a shared community watch or something like that, because of course we're stronger together in these situations. It, once we're down to the time where individual people are hunkering in their homes, it's not a good situation. Uh, you don't want to be waiting for that, but um, absolutely you want to be thinking very carefully about the ways in which you can protect yourself at peak prosperity. Just last week, just this last week, we had a really good article written by Samantha Biggers. It's about um, how to protect yourself in times of social unrest. And so there are a number of steps you could take. For example, one of the things that she wrote about was putting a protective film over your window so at least rocks can't be thrown through your windows, creating that sort of chaos. And yes, maybe a baseball bat, if that's all you could get your hands on. So, all right. Um, let, it, let me just finish this one little quote up here. So the last piece, the official claim they had been that they had been made aware of the internal planning by various banks through conversations with senior colleagues in recent weeks. So something's going on. Uh, there seems to be a lot of concern. Of course there is. There should be. They're reading the same stuff you and I are reading. They probably have access to better information than we have. And I'm sure that by the time we're detecting the smoke out here in public, there's plenty of flames behind a curtain somewhere. And the officials are busy navigating that and looking at that and doing what they can do to read the social media chatter and to read the tea leaves and use their, you know, human int on the human int on the ground to figure out what's actually going on. But it's, it's pretty clear. There's no easy way out of this particular story right now. There just isn't. And so the question then becomes what, if anything can be done about it. And I don't think there's anything that really can be done at the, at the largest, highest global levels at this point, you know, when the best time to have done something, Let's just talk about the fertilizer situation real quick. Because we haven't put the fertilizer on the fields already, spring wheat didn't get a lot of fertilizer that it needed here in the U.S. Ukraine didn't get planted. A lot of Europe did not get the appropriate levels of fertilizer it needed to have the same sustained high yields that we've had in years past. Ain't going to happen. Because of that, there's nothing we can do about it at this point. This is going to be a bad harvest year, guaranteed. And by this fall, it's going to be really obvious what's going on. And so the question is, how is that going to what can we do about that? And the answer is not much, really, honestly. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, if we were egalitarian, there's plenty we could do. We could say, hey, listen, you know, United States, you people waste a lot of food. You don't get to waste that food anymore. We're going to share this with the world as we get through this hard times. And that's the right thing to do. Probably not what's going to happen, though, um, is the way I see that. And, and we'll say, oh, well, you know, prices, markets, all of a sudden will we'll default to like this market idea. Well, 
the people of the Philippines or wherever can't afford to pay for this stuff? We don't know. You know, what can we do? Well, there'll be a little bit of IMF loans to, to purchase inflated food prices and things like that and, and a little bit of grant aid. But for whatever reason, you and I live in a culture where it's very hard to help people who are in actual need. And it's very easy to send war funding hither and yon. It's just it's a bizarre system, but it, it speaks to how broken it is to me. So <clears throat> that, I think, is, is what's going to happen. And uh, as well, this has been really... <coughs> Excuse me. Dmitry uh, Medvedev here from Russia just said this. The I think yesterday this came out, wrote one. This is from a speech he gave. Importers of our wheat and other foodstuffs will have a hard time without supplies from Russia. And the European and other fields without our fertilizers will only grow a succulent weed. Well, that's too bad. It's their own fault. Now it looks like the West is backing out. Once again, approved that all these hellish sanctions are worthless when it comes to vitally important things. Energy supplies to heat homes, food to feed people. The millions of citizens who need one thing from politicians, the chance to live normally, peacefully, and prosperously. The sanctions are getting in the way, and NATO expansion gets in the way, and the hassle of settling debts, payments, and so on. And most of all, their own cosmic cretinism gets in the way. So it is time to listen to common sense and not the trumpet voice of advisors from overseas. It's more useful in every way, end quote. This is a lot of what we're going to be living through really is a self-inflicted wound. That's why I put that little picture down there of somebody shooting themselves in their own foot. We, I was talking about these massive supply shortages that were coming in, in spring of 2020. By 2021, it was even more obvious. But even if it took a while for information to penetrate the upper levels, as soon as we knew that there were fertilizer factories shutting down production because they couldn't afford the input feedstock stock costs on natural gas, that would have been an immediate and an appropriate time for the government to step in in Europe and the United States, Canada, other places and say, we'll make up the difference. Please don't stop making those ammonia fertilizers. That would have been the right thing to do in that moment. And we didn't do that. So that common sense kind of uh, activity didn't happen. So here we are. And uh, I do believe that this is a fairly self-inflicted wound that we're going to have to navigate through. And it's it gets worse than that because nature is really not helping in this story. Uh, we're having some weather difficulties all around the world. If we look here, this is uh, this just came out. Uh, this I, well, I just came across it today. I think it came out yesterday. Italy's longest river, fed by melt from the Alps, dries up, threatening agricultural collapse. Uh, pretty strong language there, but actually, um, maybe not that strong. In quote. Yellow, the Italian river Po, travels 403 miles from the Alps to the wilds of the Po River Delta in the east where it finally empties into the Adriatic Sea. Along the way, the water nourishes the agricultural fields that Italians have farmed for thousands of years. Today, the agricultural products it grows provides 40% of the nation's GDP. Euronews reports that currently a drought so severe that it threatens the breadbasket of Italy has dried up the Po River so severely that seawater has been able to be sucked back upstream. And the reason is that the water in the delta is now higher than upstream. So, hey, seawater's flowing down that uh, gradient of gravity. 
Quote, this is because the vacuum left by the lack of river waters being filled by seawater. Giancarlo Mantovani, the director of a consortium that protects the delta's biodiversity, which can be seen flowing back upstream in some areas. That saltwater intrusion is really bad. For farmers in the area, it means saltwater seeping into the earth and poisoning crops, which are blackened and wilting. Very hard to get salted fields back into shape again. You need a lot of rainwater or you have to irrigate with uh, fresh water for a long time to pull that salt back out. Quote, there's been no rain for three months and counting, but the source of the problem starts in the Alps, where snowfall is now at its lowest level in over 20 years, measuring 50% lower than average. End quote. So that's 40%. I didn't, I had no clue. 40% of the nation's GDP is coming out of the agricultural regions served by a river that's now dried up sufficiently that it's causing a lot of trouble. So, so we've got this. You know, it, this is weather instability is the term I use. We've been having a lot of weather instability. And so that just makes growing crops a little bit harder. But when you add on top of that the lack of fertilizer, this is going to be an astonishingly bad year for the price of food if you're in the core, the availability of food if you're out at the edges. That's the year that's shaping up right now. So wherever you live, you really should be thinking about how you can supplement your local food production, maybe personally on your own land, even if you rent, make it happen. Or if you live somewhere where you don't have any land, finding farmers, local farmers who are willing to enter into a deal with to make sure that they are well taken care of so they can do the things they need to do, make the investments and put the money into growing crops this year community-supported agriculture, private deals, do it, just do it. Um, because this is going to be a really important component of not just eating calories, but eating good calories in this uh, next coming year. And in some places, it may be the difference between starving and not starving. So please, anything you can do. This is why one of the admonitions I'd put out on my early coronavirus reporting all through 2020, I was usually would typically end with, well, it didn't have to be this way. And plant a garden. And the reason I kept saying that plant a garden was these sorts of systemic disruptions were fairly easy to foresee once you understand how, you know, <laughs> that what's that old parable? For, for want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the message was lost. For want of a message, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. Things are connected. So once you see how hyper-connected, interconnected our just-in-time global delivery system was, once you actually track, and it'll shock you when you look at how far your food has to travel from farm or from field to table, it's on average two to 3,000 miles that food is traveling all over the place. So if you see that, and then you say, well, is there anything that could cause a disruption in the overall distribution systems? It could be logistics nightmares because we have this bottleneck because we had, you know, COVID logistical nightmares and, and uh, supply chain issues or simply because the supply chain issues then fed back systemically into the energy production system. And now, now you're actually short on energy. And next thing you know, you don't have the energy to do the things you want. That was that was what I was really um, riffing on back then uh, was the idea that it was pretty for me, it seemed obvious that a. A, a risk that could be mitigated is the risk of one of those riders, horses, nails, messages somehow being lost in a very, very complicated, long, brilliantly monetarily efficient, but not that economically and or 
disruption robust systems uh, breaking down. So uh, that's what I saw, and 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 that's why I kept telling people, please plant a garden. I didn't see, I didn't know the Po River was going to dry up. I had no clue about that, obviously, and and didn't know the extent to which Western leaders were going to go a little little cray cray here and fail, in, utterly and abjectly to appropriately divert resources, attention, money, thoughtfulness into the areas that we're actually going to need it the most. So, but here we are. All right. Um, this is really going to backfire. This is, this, these are things where I just, uh, I, I, I realize I was still hanging on to a little hope and this sucks it out of me right here. Uh, stories like this. So just today, turns out the house of representatives quote, passed the consumer fuel price gouging prevention act by a vote of 217 to 207, making the country, moving the country closer to greater government involvement in energy markets as gasoline prices soar to new heights. The legislation, H.R. 7688, would allow President Joe Biden to declare an energy emergency. Such an emergency would empower the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, to target people who sell fuel at a price that's judged to be unconscionably excessive or that indicates the seller is exploiting the circumstances related to an energy emergency to increase prices unreasonably. End quote. Hold on, I got a comment on that. I hate fuzzy legislation. What is unconscionably excessive? And will unconscionably excessive be different in some states versus other states? Because politics? Uh, what would be unreasonable price increases and who's setting that? And are they actually deeply trained economists who would understand what any of that is? Even if they were, we've tried this before. Whip inflation now, the wind buttons under the price controls, the wage and price controls under Nixon, they always backfire. When you try and control prices by setting prices by government fiat or decree, it always makes the situation worse. And why is not hard to understand. If you've ever been out there in the world of actual business, you would understand why. Because if I'm a small retailer and I'm getting the FTC telling me I've been unconscionably excessive and putting fines on me, I stop selling gasoline. That's how it is. It's not worth the risk to me anymore. Or uh, I suddenly have to charge levels that some bureaucrat is telling me to charge, but it's less than my actual input costs which means I go out of business because I lose money on every trade. So one way or the other, you end up with more shortages. And then what happens? Well, prices go up because of shortages. It, it actually makes things worse. So, so the, the backfire I anticipate, if this really gets off the ground, if the Senate goes ahead and confirms this, gets signed into law, then what's going to happen once this gets going? Give it a little time to get its feet under it. But ultimately, this will be used inappropriately. It'll be used politically. It'll be used to set examples. The really, really big players are not going to get in any sort of trouble at all. They'll do some perp walks on some tiny gas station owner in Paramus, New Jersey and wherever. And, 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 but ultimately, this is going to create a situation of uncertainty in that supply chain, right? Anywhere from the oil producers and the refiners through the pipeline operators, middle, middle distributors onto the retail, somewhere in that pipeline, Somebody gets dinged and they just decide they can't operate anymore. And the whole thing breaks down because for want of a nail, the shoe was lost and so on and so on. There's a connected series. This is a very long string of things between a drill bit going into the ground and gasoline coming out of a um, 
fancy nozzle there into your tank. There's a big, long pipeline in there. And anywhere in there could now be subject to the FTC deciding they've been unconscionably excessive. And by the what is unconscionably excessive? That's just begging to be tested in a court of law. But of course, by the time you resolve all this in a court of law, the shortages have been already, um, they've already happened. Carrying on, quote, the president, the presidential emergency proclamation would last 30 days, but could be renewed indefinitely as the president deems appropriate. I would like to remind everybody that we are now on our 54th year, I believe, of Nixon temporarily closing the gold window. Remember that? August 15th, 1971, closed the gold window. <laughs> yeah, so that's, uh, yeah, 51 years of that. So at any rate, uh, I bet this isn't temporary if it gets signed into law, because this will be amazing new powers. And by the way, it won't stop there. That's the second prediction. Oh, we had so much fun and bureaucratic power, and we had all these new jobs created to have regulators and note takers go out and patrol for unconscionably excessive pricing and we've decided that this also applies to vegetables and we also think it's, it should supply uh, apply to window producers and we've heard that metal roofing is now unconscionably excessive in price in its increases all of that i mean this is very predictable to see but this is a stupid strategy the only people who could propose this are people who've never actually operated a business and have no clue how an economy actually functions or how prices really get set. So under this, though, you can see what the, the implication is, is that they've assumed that the reason we have these high prices is just because some greedy people decided to jack up prices. Now, listen, that can happen in a supply shortfall emergency, but often those higher prices, particularly in a market as complex and as well supplied with as many moving parts as, as exist in the oil business, we all know this is true, right? We've we heard that, that people are driving from Southern California into Tijuana because gas is a little cheaper there. So they drive there, creating shortages there now, I've heard. So they drive there because the prices are a little cheaper. And so if it was really true that this was just a few unscrupulous operators, well, then a scrupulous operator would come along and charge a lower price and get all the business. It's, it'll, it'll correct itself out eventually if it's actually a real thing, but not once the government gets involved, not once we have anti-free marketeers in the government deciding that they're going to do wage and price controls on this substance. It's going to make things worse. Just how it works. All right. Carrying on with this, we've got um, the measure, quote, would also prioritize FTC enforcement actions against firms with 500 million or more in annual wholesale or retail consumer fuel sales, while 217 Democrats voted for the legislation, 203 Republicans and four Democrats voted against it. So this is pure party line. So now I think I see the dimensions of this. I'm pretty sure Democrats are polling really badly coming into this 2022 election cycle. This seems like a populist thing they might do. Hey, we voted to try and protect your pocketbook by passing a law that will empower government regulators to do things against excessively unconscionable price gougers. 217 Democrats vote for it. Uh, 203 Republicans against it. Four Democrats as well on that other side, but that's only 207. So 217 carries the day. That's how that went down. Purely political lines. I'm really surprised, though, that there were 217 people on the Democratic side who looked at this bill and said, that's a good idea. Just says, you know, uh, history education in the United States, not strong. Uh, we need better financial education, maybe better economic education as well. 
maybe just a little bit of a trip through some Austrian economics books and maybe maybe a little tour of uh, what happened down in Venezuela and other places. This is not a good sign. This is a, a retrogressive step. I don't think this is going to end well. Um, all right. So what do we have here? Smash to like. Thank you, NFT port portfolio. Appreciate that coming in. And uh, Jessa saying, Australia has an election this weekend. Our current PM is a WEF young global leader and is intent on signing the WHO treaty. Many Aussies are unaware of the WEF. How do we expose them? Well, Jessa, um, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to skip ahead here a little bit because I want to talk about, um, let's do this for a second. So Australia went really a little bit cray cray, a little crazy on this whole COVID thing. And Prime Minister Scott Morrison, here he is campaigning. He said something that actually shocked me. And I want to talk about that because I think this exposes the level of, of intellectual corruption that you're facing down there. And I'm very sorry that you are, but let's tune in to Scott Morrison real quick, see what he has to say here. One of the highest COVID transmission rates in the world, one of the highest COVID transmission rates. We're approaching 6,000 deaths so far this year. Mm. Was a decision taken that this is an acceptable number? And if not, what are you doing to stop 50 deaths from COVID a year, a, a day in Australia? Well, there's been 7,853 um, deaths where people have died with COVID in this country. There's been 2,376 2, in aged care since the pandemic started. Um, there have been 65 deaths in the last 24 hours of people who died with COVID and 15 of those were in aged care. And every single one of these deaths um, from the outset of this pandemic is a terrible loss uh, for the families of those who have been lost. Now, you will also know that as the number of case numbers has risen, and that's what was always going to happen as part of the national plan that we put together with the states and territories, that case numbers would rise. And there were some 53,000 case numbers yesterday. Um, and what you see when you have case numbers at that level is that people, when they pass away from many other, from many other uh, causes, they will die with COVID and their, their deaths are recorded as COVID deaths. But that doesn't necessarily mean, as the premiers themselves have set out, that they passed away because of COVID. That's a very different proposition. That's a very different proposition. And that's also the position of the chief medical officer and the other health authorities around, uh, around the country. Woo. <laughs> uh, wow. I can't believe that, that this is that we're there because... Uh, two things pop out of that. First, it was always the plan, right, that we were going to see lots of cases, right? Australia has 95% compliance in the 12 and over category with vaccination. When did they ever come out and say, we want you to get vaccinated? And by the way, as part of this plan, which you have to subscribe to if you want to at all participate in society or have a job or do lots of things, you have to get vaccinated. And by the way, as part of that plan, you're going to get vaccinated. And then later, you're going to get COVID. That was always part of our plan, that that was that we were going to see case numbers rise. No, it wasn't always part of the plan. Now it is, and he's busy trying to rewrite history. And then he goes on to do something that the health authorities refused to do in this country pretty much until the bitter, bitter end, which was distinguished between dying of COVID versus dying with COVID. And so now you can see that that nuance is suddenly appropriately coming back into play at an inappropriate time because it should have always been part of the dialogue all the way through.
So I'm a little bit shocked that, that Scott Morrison is allowed to say these things and get away with them and pretend as if this was always, it was always our plan that we would vaccinate people and then they'd get sick and, and die of or with COVID. That was always the plan. No, it wasn't. Now it's part of the plan because, of course, the, the, the data is coming in. And, of course, these vaccines don't really do squat against Omicron in terms of preventing people from catching it or being sick from it or anything. In fact, we're starting to see lots of evidence that people who are double and triple jabbed are reporting higher and higher rates of actually experiencing what we would call serial COVID, getting a case, getting another case in a few weeks. And there's, there's enough cases of that where we can say this was actually potentially one of the largest, most magnificent healthcare blunders in all of history. And so Australia's at the leading forefront of all of that. But that attempt to rewrite history does not sit well with yours truly. Not at all happy with watching how, how that went down. Um, so, uh, few reader comments that I really liked it that came in. This was uh, the most recent update, which went out on Tuesday, talking about how many lives were lost due to corruption at the NIH. Uh, Michelle, uh, sorry, Michael McMillan wrote, quote, when I worked at the NIH in the 1990s, our work was noted to be the property of the American people. Yes, of course it should be. Our papers could not be copyrighted. And we could not accept anything except maybe a coffee cup from vendors. Bernadine Healy, director of the NIH, changed all that after Robert Gallo was found to have stolen the AIDS virus from Luc Montagnier, built a kit for AIDS testing using cells from another NIH lab down the hall. He even changed the name of the cell line so the originator would not would get no credit and was bringing in personal hundreds of thousands of dollars in royalties. The solution was obvious and supported by almost everyone at the NIH at the time. Fire him. No, said Healy, we have to make allowance for genius, which, of course, became our catchphrase whenever management did something stupid, <laughs> rarely less than once a day, end quote. Oh, that was a great comment. So I, I really love that that history and getting that context because, you know, I was talking about how there's this massive corruption and there were $350 million of kickbacks, royalty payments that we know about. And of course, there's a lot of blacked out uh, language and, and lines in, in the data that did come over from the NIH. So we still don't know who's making the payments and how much is being received by individual people. But other than that, we know big blobs of money are coming in and going to a bunch of people inside the NIH. And that's how it all got started uh, with a bunch of corruption that Bernadine Healy decided to reward and make part of the landscape. And here we are. You show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. This is what corruption looks like. And that comment really did a great job of revealing, I think, where that corruption came from. Here's another comment that, that popped up on that same episode. Forgive the moniker is the person writing in and says, this is great, Chris. Thanks. But something I realized in December 2020, I think the most obvious conflicts of interest to this day is that all we had during the vaccine rollout was the healthcare provider talking points on the research documents that were all from the pharmaceutical companies producing the products. And by the way, even those documents made it clear that none of them had established they reduced infection or transmission. As an RN of 18 years at the time, I was like, no thanks. Though I'm lucky enough to still be employed, I can't say I'm unscathed. Personal relationships ruined. Any trust in government health institutions I had ruined. Who treaty that sacrifices all national sovereignty on the horizon? 
So we're going to have to go there. I got to talk about that, that, that who treaty, because this is, this is not cool. Um, but before we go there, I, I think we should talk about this too. Um, because this is an important point. This sets the stage for the who treaty. So we'll do this first, then we'll get there. I have a question. Where, where, where do these viruses come from? Jalazi 11 writes here, the H1N1 pandemic in 2009, which, by the way, was a mere two to three years after scientists had recreated the H1N1 1918 flu plan pandemic strain in a lab, 2010 was also the year that flu vaccines became mandatory for all healthcare workers. The pandemic vaccine was also under an EUA. Understandably, many people were skeptical of taking this EUA jab, so uptake was much lower than they'd hoped for. Obviously, not making Big Pharma the bucks they had anticipated. So, my assumption has always been that they mandated it for healthcare workers to offset their losses and ensure a steady flow of arms indefinitely. I've often wondered if there wasn't any lab tinkering, would we have even any seasonal flu viruses to the extent that we do? That is a good question. Where do these new viruses come from? Monkeypox. Hold on to that, because first I want to talk about this. This I put this up a few times. This actually comes from a book by Ralph Barrick. He's one of the key monkeyers, architects of the coronaviruses. And this is a book, and so he co-wrote it with a bunch of people. This is from Chapter 5, and they he they very proudly put this diagram in there showing all the work that's been done on coronaviruses, but you know what jumps out for me in this chart is that here's the first time they made a an infectious clone they managed to fool around with and take hybrid pieces from a, one coronavirus and another one and they staple them together and they showed that these were the first infectious molecular clones of a coronavirus and that was exciting. That was in the year 2000. And then they took a very standard HCOV 229E which is one of the ones a standard cold virus made it more infectious, did things to it. They were monkeying around with it. And then they took this infectious clone in 2002 and oops, here's where SARS, the original classic SARS, the first SARS came out magically and came across the world's landscape. And that was our first, our first ever human brush with a pandemic coronavirus. Isn't that a little bit suspicious to anybody else? The first time we start monkeying around with this stuff in a lab was in 2000. Three years, two, three years later, we have one that comes out and goes all over the place. And then, uh, yeah, more monkeying around. We got the SARS. They, so now they had the SARS-CoV infectious clone. They started working with that and they started doing some crazy stuff with it. And then, oops, MERS comes out in 2012 after doing all this other work. Uh, then more work is done on the MERS infectious clones. All sorts of stuff happens and they do all this other work. And then, of course, out here in 2019 is when the actual SARS-2 comes bursting out of somewhere. So it's pretty obvious to me that, that this really validates, I think, what this question was here, which is, I've often wondered if there wasn't any lab tinkering, would we even have seasonal flu viruses to the extent that we do? So the question really is, how much of this monkeying are we going to tolerate and who's doing it and why are they doing it? And all of that is just, it's really a, a not a we should be having this conversation, really. We should. We, the, the larger population, because I'm not okay with this. I'm really not. I, I, I think the risks that we take are not even remotely worth the gains that we get from it. And the gains, by the way, are a few dozen high-end virologists get fancy labs to work with, and they get some salaries for a few years. The risks that we take is that one of them messes up, 
or their lab assistants messes up or more nefarious things happen and the product of their hard, hard work just comes out and wrecks things, right? So the, it's not even remotely worth what we get in terms of scientific knowledge to have this sort of activity going on. Um, so let me go here first. So that brings us to monkeypox. So a lot of you ask, have asked me about this. Monkeypox is it's in the same exact class of pox viruses that smallpox belongs to. In fact, its presentation clinically looks a lot like smallpox. It's just not nearly as deadly or as virulent, but people still get those really awful-looking pox pustules all over their body. And so those are active ways the body is fighting that infection, and it creates act really awful, awful-looking things. So it's kind of a rare disease. I was poking around and asking the question, how much monkeypox did we see prior to, say, 2020? And the answer is not a lot. Here we see in September of 2018, the UK recorded its third ever case of monkeypox. It was its third ever. And they said that the first two cases had been from patients who spent time in Nigeria. And this person had also gone somewhere, uh, third person to be diagnosed. And um, I think they said that this person had also traveled recently further down the article, but, but rare, right? This was the third ever case. Well, now it's kind of popping up all over. We got the first confirmed case just showed up today in Belgium. We got the first suspected case in France, 17 in Montreal, so it's really hitting Canada uh, pretty good at this point in time. In fact, found this awesome uh, spreadsheet that somebody put together, and this has 77 rows in it. So there's now 77 cases all over the place. England's got a few. Portugal's got really quite a, quite a number of them here. And Spain. And here's the one in the United States, which is in Massachusetts, and England, Canada, and so on. So it's actively coming around pretty quickly. And it's spreading around. And it's unusual. So there are a couple things we can take from this right away. First, it's now we have community-level transmission. It used to be that it was very, all the other cases had been isolated. It's pretty hard. You had to have pretty intimate contact with another person with it in order for that person to pass it to you. It had been very strongly associated with gay male sex. There was something about how that's conducted that was seemed to be one of the more efficient ways to transfer it, but still exceedingly rare. So not a lot of cases out there. Now, all of a sudden, it's a lot less rare. So, well, who knows? Maybe <clears throat> human immune systems have been um, dysregulated by something. Uh, maybe it's it's that uh, there's something new about this particular pox virus. So we'll have to look at the genetic structure of it and see how close to wild type it is or if there's any modifications to it. We don't we don't know a lot about it at this point, but we are seeing it spread a little bit. And so that brings us now, I think, to this, which is the WHO. I think there's this next really inappropriate attack on individual and national or sovereign rights. This is coming up. There's a couple of links here I want to go to. So there's official briefings here from the UK, and this is telling us and I'm going to have to switch over to my web page here real quick to, to look at this stuff. So uh, this is here. Um, hmm, see if that switches over. So I'm looking now at a web page here. Ah, it came up. The WHO Pandemic Preparedness Treaty. This is something that is now on the books and being talked about. 
And so it was started last March of 2021. They had all these world leaders. They announced the initiative for a new treaty, a treaty on pandemic preparedness and response. And the initiative is to tuck that under the World Health Organization. And then they're going to have a this newly established intergovernmental negotiation body, the INB. So a lot of people on board with this at various countries. So this treaty is going to give the WHO actual authority and power to do all kinds of things. Now, remember, this is the same WHO that for months didn't understand that maybe blocking flights out of China in early 2020 would have been a good idea. This was the same WHO that didn't understand that PCR testing at a cycle threshold of 45, which was their limit, was a really stupid thing to do and gave them no usable information. This is the same WHO that didn't understand that convalescent plasma didn't work, that totally killed and mothballed a set of studies on ivermectin and promoted remdesivir for a long time. So I'm not really kind of person who feels like rewarding incompetence is the right direction to go, but that's the proposal on the table. It's not just to reward that incompetence, but to give that incompetence actual treaty power to do things that would be very intrusive into the lives and economic livelihoods of various countries. So why, who would, who just gives their, here you go. I'm just going to give my power away. I'm going to sign over durable power of attorney to this new person who just moved in next door, who, you know, broke three of the windows on my car the last three times they mowed their lawn. You know, they, they really stink at it, but I'm giving them full authority uh, over all aspects of my life going forward. Cause why not? Right. Just is really dumb. Um, so reading down this little piece here, so what is the who? We don't need to discuss that. How did the proposed treaty come about? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, but here they say, uh, let me move that down a bit so we can all see it. On 30th of March, 2021, Prime Minister Boris Johnson, alongside more than 20 world leaders and senior figures of international organizations, published a joint article in several international newspapers calling for a more joined-up approach to pandemics in the future. So, so the WHO is like, well, there's... 20 world leaders got together. And so this is this is the circular reasoning argument, right? So an unnamed official leaks something to a, a newspaper. The newspaper writes it up, and then government officials say, see, it's a real thing, right? It's a, the circular thing. So here's the WHO saying, well, there's these 20 international world leaders and senior figures that they, they said they wanted it, so I guess we, we should respond to that. So let's take a look at that list real quick. This is the actual list that we find uh no government this is the yeah authored article prime minister boris johnson here no government can address the threat of pandemics alone we must come together they just penned this on what's that date there 29th of march 2021 this is what the other article was referring to so you know blah 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 there's this big thing it was very terrible you know there's a lot of things we needed to do better and but it really focuses down here where they say we are therefore committed to ensuring universal and equitable access to safe, efficacious and affordable vaccines, medicines and diagnostics for this and future pandemics. We didn't get any of those three things, vaccines, medicines or diagnostics. All three of those were botched and botched badly in ways that were entirely predictable in ways in which actual authorities, people like 
Martin Kuldorf of Harvard or, or Harvey Risch, or you look at what the great doctors at the FLCC like Merrick and Corey were discovering, or any of the people who are actually making real headway into this thing, we really could have done a lot better. None of them are being tapped for this effort. This is all the same people who brought you a complete disaster saying we would like to continue to be an authority. In fact, we would like more authority to do it even better next time. Um, that's right, Duncan. McCown writing in at the same time, it was the WHO, WHO, that put Dayzak in charge of the Chinese lab leak investigation. Dayzak, of course, the head of EcoHealth Alliance, which wrote all those tasty grants, did all that work with Shengling Ji out of the Wuhan Institute of Virology to create this exact disaster that we are now coming out of at this particular point in time. Yeah, that, that's those guys, the WHO. They're like, who should we put in charge of the lab leak investigation? We know the person who is singularly most conflicted and would have the most to lose. That's like, at the time, I uh, it was literally as if they'd put O.J. Simpson in charge of figuring out who killed Nicole Simpson, right? It would have been like that dumb, right? That who? So, yeah, thank you for that. All right, uh, coming back to this, then let's uh, see here. So, blah, 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 blah. I want to, who, who are these 20 leaders here? Who, who were these people? Well, it starts with the Prime Minister of Fiji. We got Portugal in there, Romania, UK, Rwanda, Kenya, France, Germany, European Council, Greece, Korea, Chile, Costa Rica, Albania, South Africa, Trinidad and Tobago, Netherlands, Tunisia, Senegal, Spain, Norway, Serbia, Indonesia, Oh, Zelensky. Just can't get away from this guy. What was Zelensky doing on this back in March of 21? Hmm. At any rate, uh, there he is. And, oh, Tedros, Director General of the WHO, <laughs> penning the letter that they then refer back to and say, hey, but there are these 20 famous world leaders who all want this thing, so I guess we should do it. <laughs> Tedros is on there. This is how this whole thing works. It's just... It's just ugh. The problem with this is, is that they're talking about in this treaty that this would actually fully remove a lot of the decision making from and the sovereign rights of individuals and countries. And so let me see if I can find this real quick here. Firefighter arsonist. Yeah, that's right. Steve, Steve Ross Holmes. Uh, they are firefighter arsonists. Uh, let me see. If I can find this real quick, what's being proposed is uh, it's a treaty which gives a lot of power. The main goal of this treaty would be to foster an all-of-government and all-of-society approach, strengthening national, regional, global capacities and resilience to fight pandemics. Includes greatly enhancing international cooperation to improve, for example, alert systems, data sharing, research and local, regional, global production, distribution of medical, public health countermeasures such as vaccines, medicines, diagnostics, personal protective equipment. I, what could go wrong having the WHO in charge of distributing all the appropriate things? Hmm? Who? <laughs> no way this could go wrong, uh, obviously. So this is what caught me was this part here was that the WHO met in a special session to discuss the proposal and the way forward. And it's a very special thing, the only second ever special session of its kind in the history of the assembly. They brought it in. And as we come down here, they said that, um, I have to find it. Oh, it was so good. It was about 
the fact that oh look at all this stuff they're they're controlling here and ah this part the public cons is there public consultation can can you pergante is there public consultation the who has explained that through the WHA decision uh, that that they requested that they convene INB meetings support us work including participation of other UN systems bodies non-state actors and other relevant stakeholders well yeah but is there public consultation the INB has been taking public consultations on the proposal since early 2022 they've planned two rounds of public hearings the first took place April 2022 so that's in the rearview mirror invited limited submissions from stakeholders and the general public <laughs> limited hmm uh, in response to a guiding question of what substantive elements do you think should be included in a new international instrument on pandemic preparedness and response? That's how you control this. You say you are allowed as the public to comment on what do you think should be in this treaty? The actual relevant public comment section ought to have been one step back from that, which is, are you in favor of any sort of a treaty like this at all? And if so, should the WHO be the body in charge of it? And that would have been the appropriate place to gather the public comments. As soon as you have, it's like watching like MSNBC right now and they bring on one war hawk and another war hawk and one's like, I think we should give $100 billion. I think we should give $200 billion. I think we should, you know, send more arms. I think we should send even more arms, right? And that's the framing of the debate. That's what they did here. They said they allowed you as public to comment on the guiding question of what substantive elements do you think should be included in a new international instrument on pandemic preparedness and response. And if you missed the first round, don't worry, you can participate on that, responding to that guiding question on a second round that's going to take place in June of 2022. You know, just for kicks, maybe we should all sort of weigh in on that. I don't know. It feels like a useless activity, but maybe, maybe we should do it. I don't know. But that, unfortunately, is a train that's rolling pretty far along, and there are a lot of... Uh, governments that are very interested in signing up for this whole thing. T.M. Grunst writes here, according to our law of this country, any treaty would have to be ratified by two-thirds Congress, as well as treaties are addressed in the 16th Amendment 6-2. The states do not have to obey this, period. Well, that would be fantastic, I suppose, if we could if we could get that. Um, that's why I do think these elections are actually really quite important this year. Um I have zero interest in having the WHO be in any way, shape, or form responsible for anything that has to do with my health or well-being or my economy or other decisions like that. This is going to be an extraordinary period of having to operate as well as we can within the constrictions of the system and the universe. As it's, Here's the situation. If there's food shortages and there's energy shortages, those have to be managed locally as well as they possibly can. You wouldn't hand over decision-making about that to some external body if you could av avoid that in any way, shape, or form. That, that'd be like putting your personal garden in your backyard in the hands of, <coughs> excuse me, your, your state legislature. Uh, even if they had well-meaning intentions, it's, it's too slow. Fast-breaking situations require quick thinking, and you have to manage them dynamically. The more we move up this hierarchical chain of, of gobbledygook and bureaucrats and kleptocrats, things just get worse and worse. This next period of time, we do not need, we need less globalization, <laughs> way less. We need decentralization in many respects to, I think, get through this next period. Unless, of course, somebody releases monkeypox on us, and that's what's happening now. 
Joshua Constantine writes in, I'm trying to remember another group that insists, despite massive historical failures, they just need another try. Mm. Nickelback? I don't know. So um, it's just, uh, if you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. The fact that we don't have accountability. You know what should have happened to the WHO after they failed to block the flights? Just that one F up alone? They all should have been fired. That whole senior leadership ought to have just been frog-marched out. You give them a little one of those lawyer boxes with a cardboard tops that doesn't really fit right with their possessions in it, and you push them out the door and say, you're never working here again or anywhere after we get through with you. But no, it's rewarded. They got rewarded for being good little players in that overall system. So, hmm. Yeah. So what do you do with that, that level of, um, so you hear my cynical jadedness sneaking through. This is, there are a bunch of comments over on YouTube that are echoing those that we have going on as well at Peak Prosperity, where people are starting to ask these sorts of questions like this. Cam wrote in, it's incredibly hard to find people willing to listen and are like-minded nowadays. I've lost most of my friends because of the mass hysteria. I mean, have, have you lost any friends? If you feel like your social circles have skinnied down, maybe even family? Uh, yeah, a lot of us have, and, and we've all been there. So hoping to meet new people through your site absolutely has been the case. We've got a lot of wonderful people. In fact, we have ways for people to find each other locally too now, and so people can begin to find each other geographically. It's awesome. Amy Lonely Girl, uh, appropriate name here, writing, Hello, fellow awakened. I can only talk to my mother and husband. Also, my hairdresser is awake. But other than that, I only find comfort reading or listening to strangers on the internet. Dawn wrote, I have no one to talk to. LP said, This is so sad to hear. I've been the same way. My family's discredited me at first, but, you know, maybe things are turning around now. This is kind of people who have the capability to connect these dots, see things in this way, see the level of corruption, inanity, maybe even malice that's going on. It is kind of disheartening, to be honest. So the way we combat that, of course, is we have conversations and we have to get to know each other. And the digital is fine. But what I really want to promote and support is the idea that we have to start, as Vaclav Havel talked about in Czechoslovakia post-breakup, well, the way that they got through their hard times when they were under that iron-fisted Soviet rule was through what they called parallel structures, which is a fancy name for underground sort of like people coming together and resisting that overbearing social response of, of that authoritarian, whatever you call that, heavy blanket that sits on the culture and when you have that capability of evading that, what you do is is you sing together, you dance together, you spend time with each other, you laugh, you cry, you, 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 you do things together again. So that atomization of our culture into these lonely units, that needs to be resisted. <clears throat> That's for your own mental health benefit. That's for my mental health benefit. It's the most important thing. We have to resist this. Resistance begins here. And it, we resist most effectively by not succumbing to their attempts to make us feel lonely and isolated. And they're very successful at it. And they've even managed to isolate us from our friends and family in many cases, because those of us who didn't go down the menticide or the mass psychosis pathway, we find that holding these views and expressing them is, is pretty unpopular. It's like, you know, saying I practice witchcraft in Salem was pretty unpopular back in, in the day, I suppose. So 
What do we do about that? Well, it's really important to understand that because you're in this role of having the ability to think this way, see things this way, it's just how you're built, you, you recognize that, right? You're different from the people around you. You know you have that capability. And what's that there for? Why did nature or God bestow you with that capability? It wasn't to torment you and to make you feel isolated alone. It's because it's an important, important thing that we have actual diversity in our human landscape, and that some of us in our primal DNA blueprint were contrarians or conspiracy theorists, or uh, we're, we're just the people who are we don't we don't get caught up easily in in the the next current thing, right? So we're over here thinking relatively independently, and, and the importance of that is contained in a lot of historical metaphors and parables, and one of them is around the prophet Isaiah. And God anoints the prophet Isaiah to go out with a very important message. They were coming at the end of this really prosperous reign of a king. His ne'er-do-well son was about to take over. Stuff was about to go sideways. and It was going to get bad for a while. So Isaiah goes out, starts proselytizing to, to warn people about this, carries that message across the landscape. Within a couple of years, discovers feeling pretty lonely, wearing rags, not all that popular, asks God, hey, what, what's going on here? I'm not getting rich or famous at this. God said, that's not the point. Your point is that you need to say the these words so that the other people who can hear them can hear them because they need to know they're not alone. And together, these people are called the remnant. And the remnant are simply those people contained in that historical parable, contained in our current time, contained in many other periods of history, are the people who are capable of hearing things differently that need to be heard. Because we know that prosperous reign is ending and that ne'er-do-well son has come on board. That's where we're at. Most people, the masses, they don't want to know about that stuff. They don't want to hear about it. They will resist every attempt for you to tell them to. In fact, the more you try and tell them about it, the more upset they get and the more upset you get. And that's no good. So this is a very important period of time to, to find each other, at least, at least so that we know that we're out there. And that's great solace all on its own. Second, we need to compare... I don't have, you know, we're all like, I consider the tribe we have at Peak Prosperity back there is one of my most important signal detection devices because I do a lot of sniffing around. I'm very smart. I can figure things out, but I'm still like that wise man who's got a hold of the leg of an elephant. And I'll tell you, it's a tree. But thankfully, there are other people over there telling me maybe it's more like a snake because they're holding on to the tail or it's more like, um, you know, an octopus or it's more like a big piece of paper because they're holding onto the ear or it's like a wall because they're feeling the side of the elephant. That's the second reason that we come together as people who are capable of seeing these things because we need to share with each other. It's a very dynamic situation. Lots of things are breaking. I don't even remotely profess to have the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I've got fragments of it. And together, we start to stitch together a, a more comprehensive view of what's actually happening. And then the most critical part, though, is that this is going to get worse before it gets better. We have defective leadership. They're going to break it. They're going to break it because they know not what they do. They don't understand that you can't just pass a law legislating lower prices and that that won't necessarily really work without backfiring. They don't get it. The Federal Reserve didn't know that all this money printing was going to end this badly, right? At least publicly. Privately, maybe they knew. I don't know. So, We're at that stage, though, where we can see that it's going to have to go through a bit of darkness. And then the remnant, these are the people who actually are most responsible for the rebuilding that comes after whatever darkness we have to go through because 
They're not busy having their dreams shattered. They're, you know, they're not going through these. Can you imagine those people that you know out there who can't see this, won't see this, are unwilling to see this, who are just caught up in this whole thing? If or when, like, their world crashes around them, they lose their job, they didn't see that coming, they get sick off of something that happened to them, they didn't see that coming. You know, there's a lot of things that they get blindsided by. And while they're emotionally processing those blindsidings, time is passing, stuff's happening, and they're more or less paralyzed and not really building things or contributing to their own productive future. So so the remnant, though, are the people who have the chance, see it coming, process it early. We're fast adjusters in the language. We see it. It's happening. And we take action in response to it before it even gets here, right? So they're really powerful things that can and need to be done today in order to make sure that you are resilient for whatever darkness comes, but, but, but well positioned for that new future when it's coming. This is going to be a period of time where most people are going to experience it as an extraordinary destruction of prosperity. For a small number of people, it's going to be one of the most powerful moments of wealth creation and generation that we've seen. That's the nature of these disruptive chaotic periods when an old regime is breaking down and some new beginning is coming. We're caught in that awkward period between those two moments. It's called the interregnum. Interregnum is between two reigns of a kingdom. It's between two stories. So the old story, busy breaking down, 50 years of money printing. Hey, we've always got more oil. Hey, we're Saudi America. Hey, we don't have to think about resources. Hey, we'll just set laws to get what we want out of this. Hey, we can bully the world, right? And then this new story, which hasn't yet been written, it's emerging. And we're in that period where if you can see where that, that new story is going to emerge, then you have a shot at it. Punchline? Hard assets, hard assets, land, arable land, water, trees, food, means of production, factories, ore, things like that. That's always where the real value is. And that's what always in these, in, in these periods of time where the human pendulum swings too far towards speculation, paper money, fantasy paper promise tickets, uh, weird ideas about how we can all just get rich staying at home, um, doing nothing. And, and then that breaks. And then we discover what people always know, which is hard work and real resources are, are where these uh, wealth comes from. So that's what we're about to rediscover. Again, it's an old story and, and we'll get there. Uh, Chris writes, Bonnie Blue 2A, thank you for all your hard work sharing this information with us, as well as over on the Peak Prosperity members area. Hey, you're most welcome, Bonnie Blue 2A, and I share that 2A right there. Sorry for the people in Australia who don't have a, a 2A, which is our Second Amendment, which allows and enshrines the right to bear arms in this country, which I think is an important... You know what? I've had some really solid Democrat friends, good friends of mine, who would never have considered owning a gun before actually approach me and say, you know what, what do you know about it? And can we talk? Cause I think, it, I think I, I want to own a gun now. Start that vibe is out there. The same as, well, by the time your chief central bankers are talking about the idea in your whole banking structure is talking about the idea that maybe things are going to get a little bit riotous and, and unpleasant. Um, it's really absolutely pretty, f or, or, or it's time to really consider how you're going to manage your own security and protection. We're down at that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, that pyramid all the way on the bottom is your physiological status, right? Can you breathe, right? You know, do you have water? Do you have shelter? But next step up is your safety and security. We're going to be on those bottom two rungs for a while. Food, warmth, shelter, safety, security. That's, that's where I think a lot of people's attention is going to have to focus back down to as we come through uh, into this next period. 
So that's the WHO treaty. I think we should uh, resist this as much as we possibly can. Um, I got a grab bag, grab bag of a couple of things here to close out the show. And this first one, this was, <laughs> this, this is really funny. This was, this came in yesterday. So Elon Musk, of course, he's uh, going to get in a lot of trouble with some people who now no longer like him because he said in the past I voted Democrat because they were mostly the kindness party, but they've become the party of division and hate. So I can no longer support them and will continue and will vote Republican. Now watch their dirty tricks campaign against me unfold and popcorn. So that's Elon. And then David Rothschild writes, rich white son of emerald mine owner who grew up in apartheid South Africa is the real victim in our society. Mm, thoughts and prayers, right? Very sarcastic thing there. So <laughs> with that last name Rothschild right there, just trying to dunk on Musk for his rich white privilege is just, it's kind of funny. Um, and by the way, that whole idea that he is the rich white son of an emerald mine owner very easily disproven. Elon Musk has actually been fairly um, disconnected from his father for a long time. There was a mine that his father might have owned. Wasn't necessarily in South Africa. Wasn't Africa back in the 80s. It's not clear that he ever made a lot of money off of it. Maybe a little, but not a lot. So so there was actually some untruths in, in that whole thing. But imagine that. You're a Rothschild, you, you, you know, connected somehow through that Rothschild lineage and think that's a good a good dunk. Uh, grab bag time. Triple jabbed. Habitual mask wearer, worshiper of Big Pharma, Jimmy Kimmel. Test positive. Second time this month. I'm seeing a lot of anecdotes about this now. Uh, and so this is actually not, not, it's, it does not speak well for what's really going on here at this point in time. I do remember though, that Jimmy was really very unpleasant to people who were in any way questioning no matter how legitimately we're questioning the vaccines so that this is now his karma in this particular story is not entirely unpleasant to me in, at this stage. He, he was really very, very, well, he was a worshiper of big pharma, just like uh, Luke wrote there, uh, Luke Radowski, good stuff. So that's interesting. Watch for these. You're going to see more and more examples like this as you read through the news. There's a lot of those happening. By the way, uh, a little over a month ago, I was talking about all the elements of the housing crash. We're starting to see lots and lots of signs of that housing crash picking up steam in the United States. Why? Very easy. Look at that spike in fixed mortgage rates there, the 30-year. Woo! Just crushing through various levels there. And now we're seeing this actually spilling over into existing home sales percent change year over year now in the red. Uh, this is going to continue and pick up steam. And we now are seeing that awkward, you know, that when the Saturn V rocket that failed was trying to launch, you know, and the rocket comes a few hundred yards off and then slows down and then it comes back down. We're at that stage where things have just stopped. And what do you see at that moment? You see sales declining, price is still going up into the stratosphere. So those two elements cross like that. And you see mortgage applications fall off a cliff. So we have those three conditions. We just registered another very high median price for existing homes in the last monthly data series, but we also see the cost of those servicing those homes and the mortgages and mortgage applications down, mortgage costs up, and we see the actual sales slowing down. This is coming to lots and lots of different markets right now. That's what we would see in a stagflationary outcome. So when I said real assets before, please don't make that a townhome on the outskirts of Toronto. 
please be very, very careful about diving into real estate purchases at this time. That would be just uh, based on the data. So LDZ, hey, I'm thankful to have found peak prosperity. It motivated me to get out of the city and buy acreage. Yes, I planted a garden. Yeah. Music to my ears. I thank you for doing that. It, information without action is useless or worse. It's anxiety producing. I tell you all this because I'm hoping people like uh, LZ there take, take the action and plant a garden. Every time I hear that somebody's planted a garden, it's just I, I get that's where my hope comes from because that's how we're going to get through this. People take an action and garden is a really important piece of action that we could be taking there. Um, can we tee this one up, Ryan? This this was my this this clip here, which I'm sure a lot of you saw already, but it's because it's just so magnificently legendarily awkward. This uh, both was I, I both cringed and was kind of was kind of amused. I had cringy amusement. That's what I had. All right, play it. Let's see what we got here. In contrast, Russian elections are rigged. Political opponents are imprisoned or otherwise eliminated from participating in the electoral process. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I mean, of Ukraine. <laughs> Iraq. Anyway. Uh, oh, 75. and that audience uh, laughter. Uh, Here's the, the wholly unjustified of a man to invade Iraq. <laughs> oh, my God. That's not a Freudian slip. That's a Freudian confession. Over a million people died in that war, so it's not funny at all. Uh, and the fact that the audience decided to chuckle about that, just that's late-stage empire activity right there. I mean, that's Caligula kind of stuff going on. So that was, whoo. But you can just imagine how that could happen, right? You know, George obviously was the architect of fictitious weapons of mass destruction, legit attacked a whole country called Iraq, killed lots and lots of people, and stayed in there a very long time, created a lot of misery. That's his legacy. And so uh, to see that now um, get turned into sort of a, a joke here is, is, not, is not funny. But at the same time, I had to chuckle at, at that massive Freudian confession that just slipped right out on that one right there. Yep. Uh, so... At any rate, that is, uh, that's what I have here today. That's the show I've got. Yeah, we're, we're right at the timing mark here. I just want to remind everybody, peakprosperity.com, and come on by, and you know what? We've got some really awesome stuff there. And so if you want to be part of this tribe, and for anybody who's feeling a little bit lonely, man, we have a, just come on by. Come, please, be part of the tribe. We need your wisdom. We need your help. We need your support. It's really important for everybody here to um, come forward and, and do what they can at this point in time. Start a garden, help support what we do so that so we can keep doing what we do. Support somebody else. Somebody's writing in here, Maggie, saying, a conversation with Catherine Austin Fitz would be great. You're very much on the same page, but different areas of expertise. Yes, I've had a talk. It's been a while since I've talked with Catherine, so I would love to do that again. And so thank you for the suggestion. Keith says, you are amazing. Well, thank you, Keith. You're amazing too. So please come on by Peak Prosperity. And by the way, we are having... If you go there, look at our events because we have an event coming up in September here at my farm 
very limited. We only have a certain, you know, uh, there's only so many places, mostly due to parking in this very rural place I live in, but limited number of spaces for people who want to come. And we're going to do that Vaclav Havel parallel structures. We're going to get together. There's going to be campfires. People will be tenting here. Some people will be staying at local Airbnbs or hotels. We'll fix it in as best we can. We're going to have amazing presentations, skills workshops, and just general tours of, of what's going on here. And it's not Chris and Evie walking around saying, look at all the amazing stuff we've done. It's going to be us relying on people coming here, bringing their expertise and sharing it. It's going to be pretty amazing, whether whatever that happens to be. Beekeeping, knitting, uh, raising rabbits, uh, talking about you know professional solar installations, uh, self-defense and, and protection. All the topics. We'll be covering all of them. Anything related to building the four forms of capital that you most need, that's your health, that's your wealth or your financial stuff, that is your community and health, wealth, protection, community, and your safety. So we'll be looking into all that stuff. At any rate, that's the show I have for you today. Thank you so much for being here, being part of this. And uh, please share this, hit the like button, subscribe if you haven't, but share this with anybody you think might want to hear part of this conversation or all of it, uh, anybody you know, in case that would help. If it can, great. Let us know if it has. Love to hear from you and keep writing in, bringing your comments, and we'll wrap them into the next program. Appreciate it. Appreciate every one of you. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.